0: Again, thank you for being here at First Baptist. Great time of worship and praise. And now you are going to be blessed and challenged uh, by our speaker today. His name is Jim Burns. He's the president of Homeward and executive director of Homeward Center for Youth and Family at Azusa Pacific uh, University. Uh, He speaks to thousands of people around the world every year. Um, has 1.5 million resources in print in over 25 different languages around the world. He has a radio broadcast heard on over 800 stations a day and of course uh, via podcast as well at homeward.com. Also found out this morning that he uh, and his wife 41 years ago started up a ministry that is still in place today. Sunshine Ministries, uh, which is a houseboat ministry out on the Delta. Uh, they started that ministry up right here in this area 41 years ago and I know it's still in existence and I know many people have been blessed by that ministry over the years. And uh, once you hear him you will be most blessed. Uh, He is, as I said, coming back for the marriage conference. That is going to be a great, great time of learning about ourselves, our spouse, working on our marriages and uh, fun, entertaining, engaging sort of a way as well. Um, And as soon as you hear his voice you will just mellow at it because it is a great radio voice. I like to say it's a great radio voice. He's got a voice for radio but a face for television. How's that, huh? So, First Baptist Stockton, would you give a warm welcome to Jim Burns? God bless you, my friend. Thank you so much.
1: He pulled out of that one pretty good. You know, the face for television thing, right? Anyway, it's great to be here. And you know what, you are really a fortune. I got to be in the first service and I started talking with people. We started having a Brad Love Fest. You've got a really great pastor. You did well. I'm I'm actually thrilled to be with you, and we're going to talk about rising above family issues today. And anytime some guy comes in from afar and talks about family, you go, oh, great, well, my family's not perfect. Well, my family's not perfect. In fact, Kathy and I have been married for 42 years. I know I look much younger, probably only thought I was 42, Um, and we found pretty quickly that a sinner marries another sinner, and then you have sinnerlings, and uh, that's a problem. Now, some of you say, "But I'm not married, or you know, our family is. You know, I'm at a place where my family is, you know, grown up, or I'm a student." But the truth is, is we all have family, and actually, one of the major issues in everybody's life is working through the family issues in one way or another. You you know, you'd be on your deathbed, you're still thinking about family. And interestingly enough, the studies say that when people are ready to die, okay, a woman named Elizabeth Kubler Ross studied death and dying, and she said that you know, all of a sudden they're not caring about their 401 or their you know, taxes or whatever. Two things: right relationship with God, right relationship with family, even if they're not Christians. Right relationship with God, right relationship with family. Now, there was a husband and a wife, and they uh, were concerned about the husband's health, and so they went to the doctor. And the doctor actually brought the man in, and he poked and prodded. The woman sat in the waiting room, poked and prodded, and took blood and took urine and asked a lot of questions. Would go see another patient, and then come back, and uh, finally, after an hour and a half of this. The door opens, she's expecting her husband to walk out, and it's the doctor, and he said, may I talk to you for a moment? Kind of had a grim look on his face. Her husband walked out, but didn't say anything, but he looked a little stressed. They go into the office of the doctor, and he said, your, your husband is severely ill. In fact, I'm afraid that if you don't do exactly what I tell you to do in the next 10 to 12 months, your husband is gonna die. He wants to hear that. So he said, first of all, he, he needs to eat a warm breakfast, a good breakfast, a healthy breakfast. He eats cereal. And, and I know you're still asleep, he says, and you go to work too, but you know, the truth is, is there any way for the next 10 to 12 months you could get up early and cook him a warm breakfast? And she goes, I guess so. She was thinking in her head, well, why doesn't he cook himself a warm breakfast? But you know, that's another story. <laughs> and then he said, by the way, children, it sounds like you have great children and your children seem to be at an age where there's a lot of chaos and some discipline needs. She said, yeah. Well, because he's under so much stress at work and because he has this health issue, I'm gonna ask you to do all the discipline okay if you could just for the next 10 to 12 months let your husband play with the kids let your husband hang out with the kids but don't have him do the discipline can you do that She goes, i, I guess so um, now uh, another thing um, no nagging or negativity in your relationship for the next 10 to 12 months and she's like okay no nagging no negativity she's thinking okay i mean he said if you do that then he can live so you know put some pressure on the woman one other thing and he kind of had a gleam in his eye Uh, One other thing, If, if you could just please his every whim, whatever it is, you know, just please his whim, whatever his whim is, if you would do that, then I think that, you know, in the next 10 to 12 months, he'll be healed, and, you know, you guys can go back to living your life the way you have been, but he'll be fine, okay? So she walks out a bit stunned hearing the news about her husband's illness. They get in the car, they hadn't talked, he's driving he says, oh my goodness, I mean, he thinks I am so sick. I mean, he, he asked me questions, he poked and prodded, did blood work, um, he wants me to come back. I mean, what did he say to you? She's just staring out the window. You're gonna die. <laughs> Relationships die if we're not intentional. Why is it that we think, for example, Kathy and I, we got married 42 years ago, two neurotic kids who came from dysfunctional families, why would we think that two neurotic kids who came from dysfunctional families could get married and everything would be perfect? And yet we tend to do that kind of stuff. Why would we think that our kids would be perfect just because, you know, we thought we were cool and groovy? Kind of dates me, I'm not, I didn't say it in the earlier service, groovy, I didn't know if they'd know it, but there you go. But you know, what is this with families, see? And so, really, some of you hear a guy like me come up and go, oh man, now we're going to talk about rising above family. I'd, I'm, I'd like to rise, I'd just like to rise just a little bit above family situations. Well, you know, it's, it's not easy. I came from a family where there was alcoholism. My dad is an alcoholic, he was an alcoholic, he's passed on now. He actually was sober for the last 20 years of his life, but I grew up you an alcoholic home. My grandfather died, I didn't know him because he died when I was nine months old, cirrhosis of the liver, alcoholism, disease. Two brothers are alcoholics, so we kind of came from that dysfunction. I meet Kathy, and we'll talk more about her at the marriage conference, but I meet Kathy, she just came from kind of a crazy family, so the kid from the alcoholic family meets the girl from the crazy family, and we get together. We thought it was going to be easy. (laughs) The first year, in fact the first year I was a youth pastor at a church, and we would argue on the way to church. and then I would go talk to the kids on the joy of a Christian family feeling somewhat hypocritical, okay? And uh, we talked about the D word a lot, divorce. Our families both had divorces in it. Our parents didn't, but it seemed like everybody else did. And uh, finally, about a year into it, we said, we're gonna get remove the D word. Even if we're miserable, we're just gonna m- remove the, the D word. So divorce is gone. We're gonna make this thing work. Kathy still says the M word, murder, but that's another story. And so we put two words together. Kathy and I were sitting at the kitchen table when this happened. We said, we can be the transitional generation. You know, there's a Bible verse throughout the Old Testament, you see it all over, that you inherit the sins of a previous generation to the third and fourth generation. You can look that up later. There's tons of times it says that. The the Bible talks a lot about generational stuff, and I'm going to talk about generations today. How do we influence our kids, our grandkids, how do students influence family family live a more effective life and actually rise above some of the issues of the day. And yet, for us, we realized that we we're gonna have to break the chain of dysfunction. Kathy and I are sitting at that table and we said, "Look, it, you either recover or you repeat the sins of previous generations, right? We all do. And, and my story is, as I went, I want to recover because I was repeating some of that stuff and so was Kathy. It wasn't, I wasn't drinking and like my dad and Kathy wasn't as crazy as some of the people in her family but we were still kind of <laughs> acting that way. So we said we're gonna recover and I'm gonna hear, I'm standing here, I wouldn't be doing it, I wouldn't be doing the marriage conference in a month. I wouldn't be doing it if we didn't say that the greatest thing we've ever done is tried to break the chain of dysfunction. Now are we perfect? Heavens no. But, I'll fast forward the story, my daughter Christy, who's now 31 and has our first grandson James and is married to Steve and lives a mile from us and is awesome, was driving us nuts when she was 17. I mean, she was the president of Fellowship of Christian Athletes at Dana Hills High School in Dana Point, California, where I live. She um, was the leader of the worship band for the high school group at our church, but in our home, she was driving us nuts. Her attitude was horrible and we couldn't do anything wrong and uh, right, I mean, and uh, she couldn't do anything wrong, we couldn't do anything right. And uh, anyway, it was just, we're like, could could she go to college early? You know, we we love this kid, but you know, settle down here. So she is talking to Kathy, and I walk in from work, and they're in the kitchen. I'd say it was an argument, but Kathy wasn't saying anything. And so I do what any good passive-aggressive husband and father would do. I go into the other room, and I just listen to the (laughs) conversation. And Christy's saying things to Kathy, and some of it I'm going, whoa, that's true about your mom, but I wouldn't say it that way. And finally, Christy totally escalated. I should have done it earlier. I walked in, and I said, Christy, you need to go to your room. I'm not a screamer or a shouter. My dad was, so I kind of went the other way. I stuffed just as bad. Um, but I said, Christy, you need to go to your room. And I thought she was gonna say, turn to me and say, dad, you are most holy and blessed and you are the amazing one. <laughs> Instead, now she turned on me. So now I'm really frustrated because, you know, it wasn't personal when she was, you know, throwing her mom under the bus, but now she's throwing me under the bus. So I said, you need to get to your room. Actually, I wanted to stab her in the fork with an, uh, with a plastic or her in the neck with a plastic fork, but I write books on parenting and marriage, and I don't think that goes real good, and getting arrested. So I sent her upstairs, and I followed her upstairs, and I said, Christy, I wanna talk about mom. And I said, first of all, she's 17, some of the things you said about mom are true. So immediately she goes, cool, dad's on my side. And I said, but I never want you to talk to my wife like that again. And she went, wow. And then I said, furthermore, let's talk about mom. I said, mom came from a dysfunctional family, you know that, you're 17, I mean, you get the family. I mean, she didn't know everything, but I said, so mom comes from this dysfunctional home, and, and she starts in deficit land, and mom has grown here. I said, your mom is the person in my life who's grown the most. I've never seen a person grow like Kathy. It's amazing. It continues. And I said, so mom grows like this, but we never told you this story, but in the first year of our marriage, long before you were a sparkle in our eye, um, we decided to be the transitional generation. We would either recover or repeat, and we decided we were going to recover. And your mom has broken the chain of dysfunction in one generation, I've n- hardly ever seen that happen. And she's done that so that mom starts here and goes to here so that you can start someplace in the middle, Christi, and you can go farther than mom or dad ever could, if you choose. And she got it, I mean, her eyes kind of welled up with tears, I wasn't yelling at her. But she goes, I need to go apologize to mom. So she walks downstairs, I follow her, she goes and says to Kathy, uh, mom, I'm sorry for what I said. Um, you really are an incredible person, and I love you, and she goes in for the hug, but Kathy's still, like, you know, a little bit frustrated, so she finally hugs her, and then she looks at me like, did you bribe her to say this? (laughs) And, you know, it wasn't perfect after that. In fact, even when Christy had run out the door and she'd slam the door, it says, we have a sign that says, bless this house, and it went crooked, and we just left it crooked, because that's kind of our house. (laughs) Now you have a lot of confidence that I'm going to teach you about marriage in a couple of weeks but what I want to say is this families aren't perfect. But the question that we have today is how do you rise above whatever pain you're in? Well, it takes intentionality. Now, there's pain in life. I mean, is there anybody here who is pain-free? No. It could be physical pain. It could be emotional pain. It could definitely be relational pain. What I like to say is it's the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. Now, when I came and stood up here, none of you went, whoa, this guy is buff, but I want to tell you, I've lost some weight, I'm working out on, I mean, I've lost some weight and I'm working out on weights. My chest is sore, okay, because of (laughs) pumping the weights. I mean, you probably knew that, didn't you? You said, that guy's buff, yeah. (laughs) This is the pain of discipline. This is the pain of regret right here. (laughs) But see, who thinks it's supposed to be perfect? But yet, Jesus is going to teach us this morning, through his word, and through his actions, some pretty incredible principles about rising above. And I call it the power of being there. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 10. And uh, it's a pretty incredible statement because a lot of us have seen Mark 10 and we look at it, at Mark 10, as a scripture that has no tension. Well, I'm here to tell you that there is tension, just like maybe in your house sometimes. So let's, let's set the, the tone. They're in a village. It's Jesus, some children, some parents, and the disciples and I'll tell you why in a moment why that's so weird, okay? It says as people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. You know that that right there brought tension? You know that 2,000 years ago, rabbis like Jesus didn't allow children to come into their presence, or women, so Jesus led the way on some things, and so The disciples rebuked, didn't rebuke Jesus, didn't rebuke the children probably, but rebuked the parents for bothering the rabbi. Look at Jesus' response. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. By the way, the New Testament's written in Greek, indignant means he was angry, he was hacked. We sometimes don't think of Jesus being angry, or we think he's angry at us, but here he's angry at his disciples. He's not angry at the parents or the the children, and he makes a statement. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such of these. You know what? That was a jaw dropper in that day because rabbis weren't saying that, let alone the son of God. And then he says some amazing statements. He said, truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, and I imagine he's pointing to one of those children, will never enter it, okay? And then it says, and he took the children in his arms and he placed his hands on them and he blessed them very unique 2,000 years ago. It's kind of almost a form of affection. You know, when I saw Brad, he gave me a handshake, and then we went to the, you know, to the guy, you know, hug. And what he did was he welcomed me. Today, when we shook hands with people, I mean, it was welcoming. It was blessing. It was, I saw some people hugging. You know, that's a good thing. And that's what Jesus did to children. But again, the people around him were shocked at this. And some of the people who might not have been in this story, but they were watching, they were even more shocked. Some of the religious leaders, because that was not what was going on in that day. Now, it's probably the same children, it's probably the same parents, and definitely the same disciples, and it happens in Mark 9. Move over to Mark 9, verses 37, 36 and 37. So we're going backwards in the Bible for a minute. But in 36 and 37, Jesus makes a statement that is so radical, this could have got him killed, and yet we, again, look at it and we don't see that because we don't understand sometimes the historicity of Scripture. And it says, he took a little child whom he had placed among them, taking this child in his arms, and that's a big deal right there, (laughs) okay? And he said these, these words, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not just welcome me, but the one who sent me. Those words to some of the Jews that day were blasphemous. Because he said, when you welcome a child, you welcome Jesus. When you welcome a child, not just welcoming Jesus, but the one who sent me. So in other words, some people misunderstood that of saying that when you welcome a child, you welcome God. Well, any of you who have had children know that you didn't deliver a God. And yet, so key, and I mean, he doesn't say that about other things. So he puts that on that level. You're calling as a parent. You're calling as a grandparent. You're calling as a step-parent. You're calling as an aunt and an uncle and a Sunday school teacher. You're calling as a kid. Has to be understood in the context that when you welcome a child, you welcome Jesus. Okay, pretty big. I was in Guatemala and uh, it was the first National Youth Workers Convention. I'm actually going to be there next month. And there was about 700 people it was actually a church like this this church that they were in it was this convention but they were in a church that had kind of the 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 double thing going like you guys have and uh i was speaking what they do is they bring the gringos in and you speak for you know like five times during the day so i am i'm in my first talk the place is pretty packed people are dressed kind of like you and me a little more casual maybe i mean some of you probably think i'm casual i'm really dressed up for me um and in the middle of my talk, a woman came through the door. My interpreter, Jeffrey de Leon, who is still my interpreter, he, was, he interprets with me where I go in Central or South America. He stops me, he said, just a minute, Jim. This woman walks in and she's in an Indian costume. Nobody else is in an Indian outfit. And she has this beautiful skirt that's green and white and red. She has an embroidered, embroidered blouse and some beads and kind of high cheekbones. She's about four foot 11 by four foot 11. And just the, I mean, she was radiant, honestly. And she had this kind of funny hat, but it wouldn't be funny to the tribe because they all wore that. It's not tribe like we think of cowboys Indians I'm talking about in Guatemalan Indian who actually would have been from the, from the mountains where there's lots of drug you know, cartels and stuff like that. And I watch her and, and uh, he greeted her and he, he said, it's an honor to have you and, and, and everybody clapped. So she was a big deal, but I didn't know who she was. So then he goes, okay, go ahead. <laughs> so I finished my talk, but I kept looking at that woman She was absolutely radiant, and so I I, I said to him afterwards, uh, we prayed, and you know, people kind of lined up to want to check, talk, and whatnot, and I said, that woman over there, um, who is she? He goes, oh, sorry that I, you know, kind of interrupted your message. I go, no, 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 I mean, what's her story? She's radiant, and and interesting enough, he said, well, she's our mother Teresa. (laughs) She goes from village to village, in really drug-infested cartel-type places, um, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ to children, and also helping unwed mothers. My heart goes out for both, big time. And so I said, I want to meet her. And he said, well, great. What do we do with these people? Because they wanted me to sign a book or something. I said, well, you sign the book. They wouldn't know what I was going to say anyway. And I walk off stage, and I get to about the third row, and I said, hey, Jeffrey, I'm going to need some help. You know, I needed an interpreter, translation. He goes, oh, one other thing. She lost her son three months ago. He was 12. Well, all of a sudden, I'm dad. And I'm thinking about my daughter, Heidi, who, you know, was older, but not that much older. She's my youngest. And I went, oh, my gosh. I mean, now my heart is breaking for her. I'm not thinking about why she has a cool Indian outfit on and why she's so radiant. So I walk over to her and I said, lo siento, I'm sorry. And then in the most broken Spanish known to humankind, I said, how do you manage to be so radiant in the midst of your grief? Because as soon as I said I'm sorry, her eyes welled up with tears. I mean, you know, she was in pain, even though she was radiant. And she said something I'll never forget. She said, Porque niños son más cerca a la corazón de Dios. Because children are closest to the heart of God. And I thought back to that scripture right there that I shared with you. Very close to the heart of God. It's interesting, in, in Mark 9, if you go up to verse 42... Jesus makes a statement, and we kind of sometimes call this the angry statement, but in our anger we sometimes see how much someone cares. And he said this in 42, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for him or her to tie a large millstone around their neck and be thrown into the sea. So, you know, he wasn't somebody who who, who went around doing that. He wasn't but the truth was, is that he cares so deeply for kids. So families matter. Now we come back to Jesus after we think about this incredible, incredible story that, and the scripture that I just read. And I think we can learn three things quickly, but I think they're for all of us. Every one of us. I don't know where you're at in your family story. You know, this isn't just for marriage. This isn't just for parenting. It's for all of us. We're all people of family. And, and, and the first one simply says, Jesus said it in verse 14, let the little children come. And, and we bless children, we bless our family with our presence. You can all do that. I don't want anybody to walk out of here feeling beat up today. Sometimes the family person comes or the marriage person comes. Oh my goodness, and we all feel bad because we all have subpar in our mind. And yet we want to rise above it, but you know, how do you do that? But in families, most of you practice this well. It's, it's basically you bless children with your presence. That's what Jesus did. In fact, experts say that children regard your very presence as a sign of caring connectedness. It doesn't have to be little children. I talked to a guy after the last service who has a 32-year-old son. He said, I'm going right now. I'm going right to his house. He needs my presence, see? So I call this the power of being there. And actually, I, I learned it from that scripture, but I also learned it from my mom. My mom, she was kind of four foot 11 by four foot 11, but that's another story too. And mom was dying and she was in hospice and i don't know if you've ever had a loved one in hospice but it's rough and you know i'm busy just like you are but I, man i would see her most every day she lives about 45 minutes away and i would drive from my office in san juan capistrano in southern california to their house in sill beach and dad would almost always be watching a baseball game and mom would be on her hospice bed sometimes the tv would be on and i would just sit there and this time i was sitting there and we'd already been told by the hospice nurse that it would probably be about two weeks or so, and she'd probably go, so she was shutting down. Mom wasn't saying anything that day. She was already on morphine, and you know, she was kind of out of it, and all of a sudden, she looks at me, and she says, Jimmy, where's your dad? (laughs) And uh, so I go, well, he's watching a baseball game. Can I go get him? She goes, no, then she kind of goes down again, and I'm looking at my watch going, it's probably time to go, and all of a sudden, she goes, Jimmy, where's your dad? Agitated almost, and I said, well, he's watching a baseball game, Then she looks at me as clear as could be, and she said, You know, Jimmy, I, I, I never liked baseball. And I went, Mom, you never liked baseball. Did you ever miss a Little League game of mine? I don't think so. Did you ever miss a middle school, high school, American Legion game of mine? Mom, I played thousands of games. You came to everyone. You came to my practices. You'd be the only mom there and you'd knit, which was a little bit weird. <laughs> and I, my brother played for the Chicago White Sox. I said, Remember when Bill was in? in, like, Sarasota, Florida, and Lynchburg, Virginia, and, and Indianapolis, Indiana, when he was playing in the minors, and, you know, we would get a, you bought a shortwave radio so you could hear him. It was kind of, like, raspy, but you still wanted to, to hear his name, and Dad and I'd get bored, and you'd stay there and listen. What do you mean you don't like baseball? I mean, shock of shocks. I said, Dad watches baseball, millions of games. And she looked at me, and she said, Well, Jimmy, I, di- I didn't want to go there to watch baseball. I went there to be with you. And all of a sudden, I realized that that the powerful influence in my mom's life, or of my mom's life in my life, was that she practiced the power of being there. It was present. She'd never been to a marriage conference like what you're going to have in May. She'd never been to a parenting seminar. Homeward, the organization I work with, we're the largest provider of parenting seminars in the United States. She'd never been to one. But she innately understood, and that's what many of you have done in a good way. So what do we think? That just because we put in a few things with our kids or we hand them some bucks that everything's supposed to be cool? No. It's complicated. But we can rise above it when we practice presence. Presence matters. Jesus showed us this. Then Jesus goes down and some I'm skipping some amazing scripture that Brad can one day unpack. But the bottom one at verse 16, meaning of the first paragraph, verse 16, you bless kids with affection. You know, he took the children in his arms, and he placed his hands on them. And when he did that blessing, you know, a lot of times we think of the old, you know, folks who kind of, you bless. Or, you know, we'll do this sometimes at church. You'll put your hands on somebody. You'll pray for them. You'll bless them. But what we realize is that actually when Jesus was doing that with those children, he was sharing affection with them. We all need affection. We probably don't talk about it enough in the church. We need affection in in our relationships. We need appropriate affection you know that UCLA comes out with a study that says it takes eight to ten meaningful touches a day for someone to thrive? One of the things we're going to talk about in that marriage conference is the fact that even non-sexual touch is critical. We have something that we call skin hunger. And some of kids, I'm thinking about kids here in the Stockton area, who are sexually promiscuous, They're not sexually promiscuous because they're craving sex. They want affection. And frankly, let me be honest with you, if they had more affection that was appropriate affection, they may not run to false affection, you see. So the fact is, is that if you're from a family where you don't give much affection because your parents didn't give much affection or you have an ethnic background that didn't do affection, I got three words for you. Get over it. Kids need affection. You're grandparents. Some of you are grandparents. You can be goofy affectionate. You can get by with it. My dad, I mean, he he didn't, you know, do everything right, but he gave me affection. Now, I don't really think he ever gave me a hug. And, you know, he, if he would have kissed me on the lips when I was 13, I would have, like, wanted to slug my dad. He gave me noogies right here. This is why I'm bald. He'd always go like that. <laughs> and as much as that kind of bothered me, it also was affectionate. It was his form of affection, see? So we showered them with affection. I wrote a book called The Purity Code. Today it's the most often used book in the church for kids who are kind of 10 to, you know, 16 when it comes to sexual purity. And so what happens is, is moms more than dads probably read the book, and then they want their kids to read the book, or they read it together, and then they want me to fix their kid, if their kid's, you know, messing up in that direction. One lady called, she was from San Diego, and I live, our office is in San, uh, in San Juan Capistrano, so it's right on the border of San Diego County and Orange County. And uh, she wanted me to fix her kid because she had been caught in the act, the girl, she was 17, at home in her mom and dad's bedroom with her boyfriend during school. The mom came home from work and, you know, surprise, surprise. So the mom and the dad come in and the, and the daughter, I could tell the daughter did not want to be there. I mean, who wants to get blasted in front of somebody that she didn't know? And so the mom and the dad are sitting on this side of my couch and there's a big gap and then the daughter's hugging the other side she's never looked up once she just has her head down and the dad tells me the story that i'd already been told and the dad loses it and calls her a bad name and when he does that i could see a tear kind of drip i didn't see her eyes but i could kind of see a tear drip because i mean you know the dad lost he shouldn't have called her this bad name even though he was probably disappointed so at that point we were going to get nowhere so i said to the mom and the dad would you mind stepping out i'd like to talk to your daughter and I have three daughters, so we have never had hormones or drama in our life. <laughs> oh my goodness, we do the eye. We have a dog that that was a dog that did the eye roll. Well, I think it's all it's an inherited. So I could tell that the girl did the eye roll thing. And so I went like this. I just waited her out because she wasn't looking at me, and I mean it was like maybe eight, ten seconds, but that's a long time. And finally she kind of looks up like, what is this guy doing? And I went, wow, that was rough and she goes well it's true I love teenagers because she's she, it's true what my dad said I mean I have other stories that they don't even know about and she said you know I used to be close to my dad so I hadn't even asked her what your relationship was like with your parents I just was trying to bond with her and kind of get to know her and she said he's the one who taught me how to play tennis because she was an all-state California tennis player and yet yeah, Probably the most exciting thing for me when I was little is my dad would come home from work and from wherever I was, I'd come running up to my dad and he would lift me up every day and he'd say, how's my little princess? And then her lips started to quiver and it was like she had her dad putting her back down and she said, but I guess I'm not his princess anymore because of all this stuff. And, you know, she almost lost it. I pretty much had heard enough, we kind of did the, you know, bond moment and we talked a little bit more about stuff and then I said can I bring your parents back in and her mom and dad came in and I said to her dad how's your relationship with your daughter and he said we used to be close I'm the one who taught her how to play tennis as if I just hadn't heard that You know, I used to read to her and I put her on my we'd do this little horsey thing and it was cute but you know what Jim the neatest thing and he put his hand on his wife's hand not on his daughter's hand he said the neatest thing when when she was younger she would come running up to me every day sometimes she'd leap over the couch and I'd just lift her up and I'd say, how's my little, and then he said the word, princess. And when he said the word princess, his lip began to quiver. I think we had hereditary lip quivering going on. <laughs> and then he sort of set her down, kind of said, she copped an attitude a little bit and I guess we're not as close anymore. And I looked at that man as I would look at any of you, and I looked at his wife and I, as I would look at any of you, and I said, if you don't shower <laughs> your daughter with appropriate affection, then there are hundreds of boys, and I looked at her, she was gorgeous, I said, actually, there's thousands of boys who would love to shower her with inappropriate affection and more. And so affection is critical to a family. You know what, a lot of you do this. Sometimes we look for the magic wand. As Brad said, you know, I've got some parenting books out there, and I actually think every person should read one parenting book a year and one marriage book. It doesn't definitely have to be mine. But you know what, none of those books are going to help you <laughs> compared to showering... Showing, showering and showing affection to your kids. Again, it's what has to be appropriate. You don't do it in front of their friends if they're at a certain age. It's easier when it's, there's a little child. You can so easily put your arm around them. But again, affection is key. The last lesson today from Jesus is found in the book of Mark 9, 36 and 37. And really, it was a very radical story. And what Jesus is teaching, I believe, is that we bless children by placing spiritual deposits into their life. In fact, it says again in Mark 9, 37, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. That, was, that could have got Jesus killed. You know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leaders of the, of, the, of the synagogues were not thrilled with that statement, I'm sure. And not just me, but the one who sent me? But in reality, we bless children by placing spiritual deposits in them. It's not the job of the church. Do you know that a church, like your church, which is a good church, great church, so your church has good children's ministry, it has good youth ministry. How great is that? But it's not the youth worker and the children's worker who's to take the lead. You're to take the lead. And in fact, Rebecca, my middle child, one day she was about 16, and she we prayed every night with our kids, and yet... You know, most of the time when they're about that age it was like, Okay, you go ahead and pray. I mean, let's just be honest. And this time Becca said, I'll pray. And she goes, Dear daddy, and then she starts giggling and she goes, I mean dear God? Kathy leans over and goes, Her God looks like a bald headed nerdy guy. <laughs> Not meaning that I'm replacing God, it just means that, you know, it's it's important. So we place spiritual deposits in their life. And I know that I can't place spiritual deposits into my life if I'm running my life at too fast of a pace. I think one of the biggest problems in America, and I'm going to focus partially on this in one of the sections in the Creating an Intimate Marriage Conference, is that we're just simply living our lives at too fast of a pace. A friend of mine wrote me when I graduated from Princeton in grad school, because I was coming to the Delta. I was coming to Turner Cut Marina, if you know where that is. We had a houseboat there. Now they have a ton of houseboats in this ministry. I'm not a part of it anymore, but I sure love it. And I was driving here, so I didn't stay for graduation. He said, we missed you at graduation. And then he said, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Well, that was prophetic for me. I'm not going to be in the arms of another woman. I'm going to be just so busy, I'm going to miss the most important things. In fact, when I'm fatigued, I'm a lousy husband, and I'm a lousy father. And yet it was that great theologian, Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers coach of yesteryear, who said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. So some of us are just too busy. And I, the answer, what is it? To move to Wyoming and live in a commune? No, we have to figure it out here and now. We also have to take care of our own soul. This is not selfish. We're called to take care of our own soul. And, and, and untended fires soon become nothing but a pile of ashes, is what one woman said to me one time. Untended fires soon become nothing but a pile of ashes. Do you tend the fire within your own soul? I spoke yesterday and the day before to 3,500 women. I called it the estrogen conference. Um, (laughs) And it was in Peoria, Illinois, at the convention center. And one of the things I said to them was, you must get healthy yourself. No matter what the age of your kids, is sometimes what I meet some pretty unhealthy women and men, and part of it is because they're so focused on their children and they're so focused on whatever else, men sometimes are so focused on their jobs or whatever it might be, that we don't focus on our own soul. So when we tend the fire within our own soul, we do a lot better. I also believe that if we're going to play spiritual pause in our life, we've got to be people of integrity. The Bible says the man or woman of integrity walks securely. And I'm convinced that the man or woman of integrity who walks securely will have children who walk securely. So there was a earthquake in 1989. I mean, we've had earthquakes, they're memorable. I was actually in the earthquake up in the Bay Area. I was speaking at the Hyatt Regency. My wife and I were doing a marriage conference, actually, at the National Youth Workers Convention, and, the, and it shook. You know, when, you know, the big earthquake in San Francisco or the last big one during the World Series. And um, I said to all these people in the, in the ballroom, I said, welcome to California, because they're coming in from all over the country. And all of a sudden, this chandelier starts going, something falls on my back. And so being the incredible expert on earthquakes, I just, they all looked at me like, what do you do? And I just went, run <laughs> out that door. <laughs> so I caused a mass, you know, big mistake. But in 1989, there was an earthquake in Soviet Armenia, Armenia now, but Soviet Armenia then. And in that earthquake, 40,000 people died. And most everybody I'm told in Armenia knew someone who had died. So they gr- the whole nation grieved. Family is out in the, in the, in the street and uh, because it's rumbling and it rumbled for a long time. And so it's mom, the dad, three kids. And it starts rumbling. and So you go to the street of all places. I'm not suggesting we do that if we have an earthquake. And, uh, you know, all their houses are going to crash. No building codes. And they, that's what happened. They covered their kids. Um, they were safe. It was done. And all of a sudden, the mom and the dad looked at each other and went, Armin! You see, they had a second grader who was in school a couple of blo- uh, blocks away. So what, what, what the dad did was what any of you would do. He, struck, he took off running to the school. He had remembered as he was running that he had always said to his son, Armin, no matter what happens, I will always be there for you, right? I mean, you've said that probably. I have. And so he gets there, and where Armin's classroom is is just deathly silent, with an emphasis on deathly. I mean, there's, there's not kids there. <laughs> They're buried. And then on the other side, there were some kids who were hurt, and they were crying, but what were they doing? They were running home. Because when you're in trouble, even if you don't have the perfect home, a lot of times you run home. The dad starts digging. He dug for four hours, and finally the place in the fire said, you've got to stop this. This is dangerous for you. It's also dangerous if there are any kids there. And he goes, no. I told my son that no matter what happens, I'll always be there for him. And so he kept digging. Eight hours, his wife comes and says, honey, let's come home. Let's rebuild our house. Let's rebuild our family. Let's mourn the death of Armand. He's obviously gone. And he said to his wife, no. I told Armand no matter what happens, even if he's dead, I'm going to find him. And so he kept digging. He dug for 12 hours. He dug for 14 hours. 26 hours. And all of a sudden he hears something, and he says, Armand, is that you? And he hears his son say, Dad, it's me. It's me and seven others We're, were in this pocket. I knew you'd come. I told my friends you would, because in, I said, if he didn't die, my dad's going to come, because he always said to me, no matter what happens, I'll always be there for you. Now, let's put it this way. In both the Old Testament and New Testament, there's one sentence, and God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. The way to rise above your family issues, he's not always going to take your family issues away. I wish, I wish I had a magic formula. But the way to rise above it is to understand that we do this with God and with his presence. Brad talked about this. Maybe there's somebody in this room who's never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Well, part of the benefit of including God in your life is that you include him in your family life. Kathy and I wouldn't be married. There'd be no marriage conference with us doing any kind of leading in May if it wasn't for God. And so the idea that I will never leave you or forsake you is the idea that I want to leave you with today. What is God speaking to you about? Is there something that you're supposed to make a phone call to say uh, to the person maybe that you're even sitting by, I'm sorry, to go do what the man felt like at the 8 o'clock service? He was was literally getting in his car and driving a distance to go hang out with his 32-year-old son. I don't know his story. But God does. Families are messy, but please remember that families are beautiful. Children, good parents sometimes have children who make poor choices, and some of you can't feel beat up over this, but be encouraged that God can help you do this. He can help you do family. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for these men and women. Thank you so much for Um, your presence. Thank you for a church that cares for kids. Thank you for a church that cares for family. Thank you for a church that cares for marriages. And God, may, may you be present in our life today, and may we be empowered to do and be all that you want us to be. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, and everybody said, amen.